you will, please turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians will be in the middle of chapter 7 today. 1 Corinthians 7. Ever since chapter 5, we've seen the Apostle Paul having to deal with huge problems in the Corinthian church because the people in the church were living more like the unbelievers around them than the genuine believers they claimed to be. First, there was the huge issue of the church looking the other way from a blatant issue of incest. And second was Paul's teaching about sexual immorality and his plea for them to flee all its forms. Third, as we've seen the past two weeks, Paul covered various issues, other issues about marriage. And now in the middle of chapter 7, verses 17 through 24, Paul presents a big idea that these people and you and I need to understand and apply. We're in some territory now that may be hard for us to understand because it looks and sounds a little strange to us, but Even so, it's practical, very practical. Why? Because like us, these people were trying to understand how to live as Christians in the middle of a society that was so blatantly ungodly in every way possible. And as we continue in 1 Corinthians, remember that if most of the people in a society or culture or city, are non-Christians, we cannot expect them to live as if they know and serve God. As the gospel is proclaimed and some respond with true faith, and they immediately then have lots of questions. So what's behind what we see in our text today is that many different kinds of people have come to Christ in Corinth. They believe the gospel of Christ and been made into new creations in Christ and now are finding out that they belong to him. And that means most everything in life changes. So what are some of their questions? We can make a little list here. If I'm uncircumcised and not Jewish, do I now have to be circumcised to avoid conflict with the Jews? Should Gentiles begin to live as Jews? Should Jews seek to undo their Jewishness? Do the limits placed upon slaves by their masters infringe upon their freedom or standing in Christ? What should slaves do once they become Christians? Must they stay slaves, or is slavery incompatible with Christianity? Well, all those questions are touched on or addressed in our text. 
Now we see today that Paul is addressing a Christian social status at the time they're converted. But there's even more to it. It seems that there's some kind of crisis for the people in this church that's not made clear. And because of this unspecified crisis or distress, Paul urges each person to lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him, adding, this is my rule in the churches. And there's great debate, as you might imagine, about what exactly this crisis or distress is, because it is not clear. And we'll try to figure out the best way to understand that, but we don't get to the actual mention of the crisis until next week, which is really sort of good, because we have something big to deal with today to try to get an understanding, get our heads wrapped around. If you are able, would you please stand as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 through 24. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave or bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, I'm trusting, as we go through this, that the Lord will help us stay on the main point. Because what people do with this passage, especially, is they grab one thing, and there are several, and they just want to run with that and not even think about the context that it's written in. So be careful. Did you hear Paul's main message to these folks? He said it twice, right at the start and then at the end, the bookends of our passage today. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule, where? In all the churches. And then in verse 24, So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, Let him remain with God. 
Now, some of you are getting worried, and it's way too early. Try to get it first, and it's not easy. Paul urges them to live in light of who they are now as belonging to God. His appeal to them is to recognize what belonging to God means, which is living for him in whatever they do and wherever they do it. In the nitty-gritty day-in and day-out details of work and provision and decisions, etc., etc. It means especially that one's vocational, marital, or social status does not require a change just because you're now a Christian. In other words, they did not have to change their present status now that their identity had changed to being a person who belonged to Christ. We'll also see that this chapter does not say that a believer cannot improve his standing in some way. Look at verse 21. We see a good example. Were you not a bondservant or slave when called? Don't be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Well, first, let's get a closer look at verse 17, the first verse in our text today. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. The phrase, lead the life, literally means to walk. It's a picture conveying the idea that we can continue, we should continue, the walk each of us had before coming to faith in Christ. In other words, our social status has absolutely no bearing on our identity in Christ. When someone comes to Christ, they don't need to give up their secular job and get a Christian job, quote, or start a ministry or withdraw from the world. Now, if their work is illegal or immoral, of course, this doesn't mean stay in it. Christ calls people to himself from all kinds of life situations. It would be fun sometime to just go through what everybody does in here. Most of you know most of the people, but I bet there'd be some surprises. The word assigned just means the life God has given each one to live. Paul uses these examples here. Whether they are uncircumcised or circumcised, whether they're free or slave, and then whether they're married, single, or divorced in the next passage, which is the rest of the chapter, which we'll look at next week. So there's really two examples here today, two general and it's not exactly too 
They're not two examples that we can readily identify with in our own experience, probably. The word called in this context, that's the key, in this context refers to the life vocation of a person who has been called to salvation. In fact, the word and the idea of vocation that was worked out for a couple hundred years, mainly with the Reformers, um, is this word. The first kind of calling that we see, and we see there's really two, Martin Luther understood that the Christian has two genuine and related callings. The first is the kind of calling about your identity. Belonging to Jesus, why? Because of your salvation in Christ. Of his effectual calling of you to himself. The second kind of calling is about your vocation. Usually thought of as what? Your occupation or profession or your particular station or place in life that you occupy. Now, this second sense of calling to your vocation includes all that the Christian does in service to other people. Here, the Christian is the instrument by which God does his work in the world. Now, I'm going to read a couple of verses to you from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, okay? We know the first two so well, and sometimes we know the third verse, but it's almost never connected for some strange reason. So listen to this. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That's rather a strong purpose statement for why we are here, why we are alive, what we are called to do. The Christian sees what they do for a living as a calling from God. And here's the kicker. To bless others by helping them flourish in their work and lives. If you're wondering where in the world that idea came from, that shows you how far we have gone in our own culture. It's not a good place that we've gone. We have fallen a long way from where it was actually common. And there are some people in this room that are old enough to have maybe seen this attitude or heard it expressed in their families or even with their neighbors or the place they live. But you don't hear this anymore. Because it was common in our culture, mainly because it was based on what? Not everybody by far, but 
It had been based on the Judeo-Christian work ethic that is contained in the Bible and the moral framework of which most people at least gave lip service to. But what happens now? Because it used to be common to ask, when considering a job, to ask yourself, which jobs will help other people flourish? And we hear that now, and it just sounds really strange to us. Because what today many instead ask themselves is, which jobs will help me flourish? With no consideration of the other. This kind of Christian um, distinction in thinking is not even on anybody's radar anymore. But it is now, if you haven't. A lot of you probably just kind of thought that way anyway. Maybe you didn't even know why, but this is why. Because it's a part of what God calls us to do. Why are the ideas of identity, calling, and vocation important? Why does it even matter? Why are we so oblivious to this principle? Why is Paul so concerned that the Corinthians understand this? Because a person's understanding of their identity in Christ determines so much about how they live. And it's obvious that the Corinthians do not understand how to live as Christians in their sinful world. That's what this whole letter is about. So this is big. In other words, a Christian's understanding of who they are in Christ actually shapes their vocational calling, their work in the world. And this never works the other way. If you turn this upside down, you are part of the problem. That means that your vocation should never fundamentally and almost only define who you are. Now, in interacting with each other in social settings, of course, the first thing you always ask is, what do you do? It's a way to kind of get started. If you want to change the subject, go buy a baseball bat for a cane. People don't ask what I do. And if I told them, they'd probably pick it up and try to hit me with it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Icebreakers. Finding out about somebody. We usually go straight to what do you do? Which is great. Because you can find out a whole bunch about somebody that way. But if that's their only identity, if that's who they are, so much that you never find out that they belong to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, there's a problem there. Sometimes it's, it's fun to see somebody who's not real outgoing and they love their work and they do it well and everybody wants to call on them for that kind of work. It's fun to watch a Christian like that and all of a sudden you start asking questions and they and they give little hints about what they really do and why they really behave that way and 
why they try to help their customer and how they try to encourage the customer's son or daughter and you, because they're in their home or doing something for them. You see what I'm saying? It doesn't have to be pull out your card and flash it in their face. That is not what we're talking about. Our identity is how we think about ourselves. And that is really, really, really important. God designed you to find your fundamental identity and purpose and meaning and fulfillment, not just in your vocation, but in Christ first and foremost. He will outlast any job or interest or relationship, whatever you try to find your ultimate fulfillment in. Why are so many people falling apart in our culture today? Because whatever they've put their whole being into has failed them. And all of a sudden they don't see any reason to go on. This is not rocket science. So if you start applying that, you can tell how easily we drift there so fast. No one, nothing can ever bring peace to your heart except the Lord himself. And yeah, it's really exciting and uplifting when your team wins or you score a, a you know, something in your job that makes you um, recognized for your good work. All that is important. But if that's what really makes you tick when you cut everything else away, then you're going to be disappointed most of your life. And when you get older, you're going to be a crab. And nobody's going to want to be around you because it's just all horrible. Do you see the difference? Your hope has to be in the one who saved you. The work he's given you to do is how you express the love and care of Christ and gives you opportunities to care about other people and hopefully proclaim the gospel to them. No one, nothing can free you to serve and work to the best of your ability except the Lord. Hey, let's... Recognize this, who designed you and made you and came to save you. For example, a secure identity in the Lord means that your work is not your fundamental identity. So if you love your job, your fundamental identity will not fall apart if you lose that job. Does that make sense? You love your job. You do excellent work. But if you lost that job, it'd mess with you for a while. But that's not your fundamental identity. So you would not totally crater. In fact, you're free to enjoy your work and be God's instrument in it and trust his faithfulness as he works maybe some stuff out. Maybe after hard stuff. If you do not love your job, You should already know this principle as a believer that your job was never designed by God to totally define you about who you are. But you are free to work for the Lord in that place, in that job you do not love. 
And all of a sudden, you have another purpose that's just a little higher than that boss that you cannot stand. Or that work that you just can't hardly go to every day. So what really does change about all this is our attitudes. So now Paul takes his readers through these two kinds of life circumstances involving what the Corinthians considered to be thorny issues or questions. And by doing this, he shows them how easily they've made something else besides the Lord the source of their identity and meaning. They need to see that their identity and meaning in life can and does come from having the right attitude about who they are in Christ. Not from being circumcised or uncircumcised or being a slave. That, that's a tough one. We'll get there, but I'm not going to exhaust it. And being a freed man. I've got to tell you a story before we get to these examples because I've, I love to use it and I love the fact that God put this guy in my life. He was a teenager when we lived in Colorado. He loves the Lord. He lives in a family, blessed in a family that loves the Lord. They have high expectations and certain things like being able to read and study and all that sort of thing. And this guy is a friend. And he makes Megan laugh. Who else do you know went to college and bought a hearse for his vehicle? I don't know anybody else in the world that has done that. And he didn't do it to be... I'm the craziest guy on the face of the earth. He just did it because he liked the car. Old, fix it up all the time, obviously black. Then he moves to a little town that was smaller than the one he was living in. And we, everybody, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? He could do anything. He could lead trips. He could do all sorts of stuff. And he got a job with the waste disposal plant and he drives a garbage truck and he knows every kid on his route and this is a small town so it's not like there's 20 routes and they come out to say hi to him when he's picking up the garbage or taking it or doing something and his reputation in town is as a kind and gentle soul who loves the God Almighty, and he went to college. Now, that's an extreme example, and every parent in here is going to have to, they want to talk to me afterwards, and say, do you realize the door that you just opened? <laughs> just calm down, because if God has assigned him that particular line of work, and he is fulfilled, probably has more peace than all of us put together about his life, then who are we to say anything? And he's also a leader in his church. Just thought I'd throw that out before we get to these examples that we don't really want to talk about. Verse 18 and 19 is Paul's first example, which applies this calling and identity principle to the Corinthians who were not circumcised, but wondering whether they needed to be and vice versa. 
Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. But keeping the commandment of God is what counts. The Old Testament sign of belonging to God, circumcision, passed away in the new covenant in Christ. But this was a very big problem because anybody who believes that, that keeping the law is the way we get to God and that they can actually do it and, they, and they're very consistent and try their life, if they go that legal kind of route, there could be tremendous pressure on anybody in this church who became a Christian if they misunderstood what it was and what it is now in Christ, which, you know, it just all happened. So this was in the process of being understood in the first century. The pressure to what? Have the sign. And what are they going to do, do to me if I don't? And whatever. So this was a huge issue in the churches. It was a really big problem across the Aegean Sea from Corinth and in the churches in Galatia. So much so that there was Judaizers, teachers, going around to all the churches with false teaching about the necessity of circumcision for salvation. And Paul had some very strong things to say to these people. He called it another gospel and pronounced anathema on the teachers. This is serious. But he clearly says that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything. And notice then that what Paul says does count is keeping the commandments of God, meaning humble obedience to Christ's lordship, which doesn't demonstrate working for one's salvation, but rather evidence that they desire to genuinely follow Christ. This is really similar to what he wrote to the Galatians themselves. In Galatians 5, 6, he said, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Sounds like a popular phrase to the churches. But only faith working, working through love. You get that? That's how he expressed it to them. And that's similar. He also said it in Galatians 6. Love manifests itself in keeping God's commands, and the love is the sum and substance of Christ's law. In verse 20, Paul states the principle again. Each one should remain in the condition which he was called. So, I don't, you know, I always wanted to be able to have a little telescope that goes back in time and see what happened to these guys when they heard this, if they were so worked up about the importance of either one of the sides of this issue. But there had to be some strong teaching on it because it had been so ingrained. So Paul's second example is about slaves and freedmen. Now, it's real interesting. The ESV mind said slave, and then they changed it 
every once in a while they you know go back through the text and they change it to bond servant. There's a good reason for that, and I'm going to explain that now. But I wanted to say both words so that you get the idea a little better. Were you a bond servant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant, and we're, we're slave, is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he was free when called a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants or slaves of men. Everybody got that? Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Okay. In Corinth, it's estimated that one-third of the population of this large, important city were slaves. One-third. And one-third were freed or emancipated slaves. Already, our Western minds are going, oh, wait a minute. That's not how I think about slavery or what I learned. That's right. You didn't. Our, the, the way we look at this is different, which is why I'm bringing this up. And one-third of that city were free-born citizens. They were born free as citizens. There are some important distinctions between these slaves and the slavery that we know about in our history, which is why the word bondservants is used in some English translations. Because you can't even hardly preach this passage if the word is slave. People just go ballistic right off the bat because of all the horror of the situations that we know about. The main distinction between the slavery in the modern world and slavery in the ancient world was that the modern understanding, ours, is largely about incredibly hard forced labor, while slavery in the ancient world covered all vocational levels. That It wasn't just hard forced labor. There was some, and it was brutal. But a slave in the ancient world could be from any vocation and may have been acquired for that purpose. In fact, many would sell themselves into slavery for economic or social advantages, getting to do a kind of work they've always wanted to do. The price they paid was, hope you have a good master. But we don't even, this, this doesn't compute because we've never really probably been anywhere in this kind of a situation. In the ancient world, a slave could run a business, could be a teacher, or even manage a household. Think Ben-Hur, the movie. One of the main characters was the rich Jews slave who ran his whole business in his household. That was not uncommon. Corinthian slaves probably mostly would not be laborers in that society. It's hard for us to even fathom that. Modern slavery was race-based, and if there still is a lot of this around the world, it can be race-based while ancient slavery was not race-based, every type of race was involved or in it. 
Modern slavery was almost always permanent. No way to be free. And you can tell from our text, ancient slavery made it possible to be temporary, even allowing slaves the ability to purchase their own freedom. If the job they had after going to the master in that enterprise, if he had left over whatever, they could actually do that. In ancient slavery, many times it was more like indentured servitude, which you should have learned what that was in world history, which I bet hardly anybody did. However, a close sort of modern picture of it is Downton Abbey. They were free, but they weren't. Before that, they were tied to the land, couldn't leave, owed portions of everything, that whole picture. That would be more like what ancient slavery was than not. So, even knowing some of these of the distinctions, don't miss the fact that Paul sets conditions leading to freedom, which we've mentioned. They're encouraged to gain their freedom, and non-slaves are instructed not to sell themselves into slavery, no matter what they think the advantages may be. Because there was always the other possibility that could be very harsh. The point of this second example is also that in whatever condition each was called... Let him remain with God. And how was that misused in our early history? This was the verse. Misused out of context. Why? Again, a Christian's identity in Christ, who they are in Christ, makes their vocational calling a secondary issue. Your life is not enslaved or by, or by or fundamentally identified with what you do for a living. We need some examples? I did. I mean, I just had to run through this because we just don't think like this. Instead of seeing yourself primarily as a nurse, because we have a million nurses in here, who is a Christian... You are a Christian who is serving the Lord and your staff and patients as a nurse. Uh, you want to try engineer? Instead of seeing yourself primarily or only as an engineer who is a Christian, you are a Christian who serves the Lord by designing great stuff that works for your clients or your firm. Instead of seeing yourself primarily as a teacher who is a Christian, you are a Christian who serves the Lord and your students as a teacher. Instead of seeing yourself primarily as a service technician who is a Christian, you're a Christian who serves the Lord and your clients as a tech, etc., etc., etc. Does that make sense? Nothing here denigrates the tremendous work you've accomplished in reaching whatever goals that you set. What sets or what changes is the more constant recognition that we have of who you really belong to, which opens your heart then to using your work to bring glory to your Savior. How? By blessing others through your good work and helping them flourish. 
Notice in the last few verses how Paul helps us see something very difficult. And that is how the price, the price of our new identity in Christ actually shows us how to navigate between our identity and vocation. Look at verse 22. We see that he who was called in the Lord as a slave is now declared a freedman of the Lord. Here, the slave who comes to Christ realizes he was bought with the price of Christ's blood. Do you see how hard that would have hit these people? They can get this. Because they don't live in a world that thinks they are the boss of everybody all the time, anywhere. No matter what restaurant you go to, no matter what you drive, no matter where you are. They understood this concept of being under somebody. And the opposite scenario. He who was free when, he, when called is now a slave of Christ. And you're going, ooh, I don't like that. Now wait a minute. Here, the one who thought he was free now realizes it took Christ's blood to save him. And this is humbling. As he now has a master. Yeah, that's what Lord is. Master who owns him 100%. But what's the difference? What a master! Our master died so that we could be right with God. Our master is not in it to increase his portfolio, to increase his bank account, to increase his whatever. He did it to bring glory to God in heaven who created us. And we were lost and there wasn't any other way for us to know him. Our master died for that. For us. Does that make you want to rebel? If it does, you're in trouble. In other words, the Christian is free from enslavement to the social status quo in order then to be a slave of Christ. We can work belonging to him, and be free to figure it out, how to serve him, how to be great at what we're called to do, or try anyway. And in the process, the people we work with should see a difference. Somehow, some way, along the way, they should see a difference in our attitudes. So we're now, we're to remain where we are, Paul says, and be faithful. So I hope verse 23 makes more sense in this context than maybe it ever has. And with what's happened this week, this is 
a special balm to my soul. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. They will not fulfill you. Whatever it is will not fulfill you. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are so amazed by your grace. We sing that song, we we know the words, we hear the words. We so often uh, just forget what we're saying. But Lord, we are faced with passages of your scripture where your spirit speaks to our hearts through these words. We, we do want to know how to live for you in, in, our, in our world here in the panhandle, even when we see so much that is turning a wrong direction. And yet we realize that there'll be more distinction or there should be between us loving and serving you and proclaiming you and other people who are living for really nothing only things that could bring them acclaim or pleasure or whatever it is in the here and now, but then the rest of eternity, nothing. So, Lord, we we ask that you'd help us think about what you've called us to do, what you've, because of who you've called us to be, that we're united to you. We thank you that in the loss of a dear member that those who knew Verona were teary the whole time. Our hearts are aching. Those that are close, the more ache. And that those aches are because of the goodness of the blessing and the gift she was to us. And other people can be amazed by that to hear the testimonies of their grandchildren talking about how they came to know your son just mainly through the way she lived and the way she loved and the way she read and studied her Bible. Oh God, we we have so much to learn. Thank you that you're so patient with us. But we pray that that kind of example and testimony, we know that's, that's what people cannot ignore. And you will call people to yourself as we proclaim the gospel and live like people who do not belong to ourselves, but to you first and foremost because of the blood that Jesus shed, his own blood for our behalf. We just praise you and thank you for these blessings. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with y'all. Amen. You're dismissed.